You came in this morning and you probably already opened up your bulletin and saw how many notes you need to take today. If you have not done that, you might want to take a look. Now, we've been in this series, Key Ingredients or Ingredients for Successful Living, and sometimes we'll look at ingredients and we'll say, what key ingredients do I need to make this? And so we'll get certain things together so that we can make whatever it is we want to. We've been talking about dealing with broken relationships. That's one of the key ingredients in living a successful life. We talked about getting to know God and vision for my life in the past couple of weeks. So you might be new this morning and you're wondering where we're at today. Well, that's, that's what we've been covering. So you can jump online at newhopehilo.org and then you can come up, uh, be up to speed with what we're talking about today and, and what we've been going through in our series well, we've been going through a whole lot of things, especially in our church. And I've been talking about even the changes that are taking place in our staff and the transition that we've been going through. In fact, it is said that it takes about three years to go through a transition as a church when there's a leadership change, which is what we went through about three years ago with Pastor Alex and myself. And you may, you may be new to the church or you may have been coming for the past couple of years, and you may not have seen that transition, but we are on the back side of the transition now. In the front side of the transition, Pastor Alex asked if I wanted the entire staff to resign so that I could bring on a, a new staff uh, under this new leadership. And I said, no, let me work with the staff, and then uh, we'll do that on the back side. And as time goes on, then we'll be able to uh, develop this team. And so we're on the back side of the transition, so some of you have been hearing things about our staff, and you're wondering, so what is happening? Uh, some of you are saying, so they, they don't have jobs, and they have jobs, okay? They're working right now. Uh, I've asked our staff to resign at the end of the year, so they're still employed. Uh, some of our staff uh, had the Lord speak to them and, and say to them that they're not going to be here next year, 2013, because God's going to do something else through them which I'm glad to hear that we're listening to the Lord, that they're seeking His face and not saying, well, because I've always been here, I'm going to stay here. They're seeking the Lord, which is what I've asked them to do. Then there's others who I felt that they're not going to be here on staff come next year. And so that's another shift that's going to take place come 2013, and then we'll have a new staff in 2013. What I've asked the staff to do is stay close to Jesus and focus on Jesus. Now, as a result of this, there's some fruit that's coming out of this. Some of you are asking about Pastor Aaron Pacheco, and where's Pastor Aaron Pacheco? Well, he's on sabbatical right now. I gave him a time to rest up and, and just to uh, think things through because he feels that he's not going to be here on staff come 2013. Now, you might be thinking, so he's not going to be here? No, he loves the church, and he wanted me to communicate this. He loves this church. He will be here at this church. This is his home church for he and Carlin and his family. But he'll just, he just won't be on staff come next year. So right now, what he's praying through is what God is calling him to do next year. And so that's where he is right now, and that's what he's doing. He's really seeking the Lord and, and, and getting before God, which I really appreciate. He's doing well. He's healthy. He's joyful. He's vibrant. And uh, I just had lunch with him the other day, and he's doing great. So he just wants to let you know, he just wants you to know that he's doing fine. Uh, also, as a result of this, I felt the Lord saying that Pastor Stephen Rice will not be here next year on staff come 2013. And some of you know Pastor Steve. And... Uh, as a result of this, we're planting a church with Pastor Steve. Pastor Steve will be the senior pastor of the Word of, oh, just called Word of God, and we're going to birth this church at Waikia High School. And so it's going to be an unbelievable. Pastor Steve, why don't you come up? And I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to come up. So. <clears throat> So I believe in planting churches, but I strongly believe in planting pastors. You get a strong pastor, you have a healthy church. And Pastor Steve has been serving here for years. He's been here from almost the very beginning. So he's one of the pillars of this church. But it seems as if God is doing something more in his life. Because not necessarily we need more churches, but we need more pastors. We need more pastors to shepherd people. 
And the Bible says, let your light so shine. And this church will shine its light. Then this church that will plant, they'll shine their light. And it's amazing that if you look at what's taking place right around uh, Waikia High School, that God has been preparing that place. He's been putting stoplights. He's been putting crosswalks. He's been ex- uh, uh, widening the sideways, uh, the sidewalks and the, the, uh, the sides and, and beautifying the place. And you guys thought the college was doing that. But I really believe that God was moving in the hearts of the people. And so Pastor Steve is going to be taking a core group of people. And we're going to birth this church. And what I'm presenting to you today is for you to pray. That you would ask the Lord if you are called to be a part of this team. That if God is saying that you're to be uh, to help them, maybe for a season, then go do that. Or if He's calling you to serve there, then do that. What I'm asking you not to do is this. If you have some problems here, that you'll say, then I'm going to leave this church, I'm going to go there. Don't do that. Resolve the problems that you have here. Then when you have a right spirit, then you go and be with them. Otherwise, you'll have the same problem that you had here. Because the problem is never here. The problem is always here. And I say that as the first person to admit that. The problem is never with other people. It's usually with me. Don't say any amens, just shh. But usually that is, hey, hey. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I just wanted you to meet Pastor Steve if you don't know him, but he's going to be planting a church. So thank you, Pastor Steve. <laughs> so you'll see him and his wife, Susan, and they're going to do great, and we're going to strongly support them. So please pray for them and pray if that's what God wants you to do. And uh, again, our church is pregnant. We're giving birth to another church. It's going to be beautiful. So thank you, Pastor Steve. Well, you can take out your bulletins and and take out your notes, and we're going to jump right in. And as you can see, we have many things to cover this morning. And if you're new today, this is a a little bit of a different type of of morning for us. Uh, We normally don't have this much to cover. But I really feel the Lord stirring my heart to cover some key ingredients for successful living. When you bake something, you have necessary ingredients. But... As important as the ingredients are to, to bake what you want or to have the right outcome, it is just important to have the right amount of ingredients. For instance, to make cornbread. Cornbread requires butter, sugar, vanilla, eggs, bisquick. Don't need to write this down, okay, because I'm not giving you the measurements. Uh, white cornmeal, baking powder, milk. And you combine all these together and then you put butter on top afterwards. So this is already a freshly baked cornbread. Now, uh, if you know Carolyn Maderas, she's the one who made this cornbread. And if you've ever eaten Carolyn Maderas's cornbread, then every other cornbread is just different. That's all I'm going to say. But so you have all these key ingredients in here. So I'm just going to make sure that it's the right ingredients and baked well. Mm. Mm. It's baked well. Oh, thank you. I even have milk. Just a small piece. Just a small. Mm. Mm. No need. No need. It's so good. It's so good. I like, hey, save me the piece. I heard you guys trying to split it. You can either taste for yourself or you can be disconnected. You can almost feel how good it is and taste it. Some of you need to wipe your mouth right now. And that's what this message is all about. That you're part of the key ingredient that what, of what we're going to discuss today. As much as we're going to talk about re- resolving relational conflict as individuals and in our lives, we're also going to be talking about resolving conflict as a nation. 
So if you take out your notes in your bulletin, you have two separate notes. And I want to explain these two separate notes. You have the notes that we're going to take down that has to do with relational conflict. And that's the one that, that we're going to talk about of the seven key steps of resolving relational conflict. You have another sheet of paper that has four points, A, B, C, D, that has to do with selecting our next leader as the President of the United States of America. Now, we're going to weave this two together because it really comes together in everything that we do. Some of you are at a place where you're saying, well, I, I don't know what I'm going to do when it comes to Election Day. Come this Tuesday. But did you know that the Bible gives us key ingredients for successful living when it comes to these two issues? Relational conflict, personally, and relational conflict as a nation. We're going to learn some skills that we may have never learned in tackling these two critical issues. And because the world is broken, we have conflict everywhere. In our lives, economically, with your sexuality, politically, at home, at work, with friends. And no one really gave us a teaching on conflict management. Remember when we were growing up, if you didn't share, mom or dad or auntie or uncle came up to you, gave you a little putty or a little slap, a little tap on your hand and said, share. That was relational conflict management right there. There was no real teaching to it. It was, it was demanded of us. And this is what you're supposed to do. Now, here's the instructions for our notes, and then we'll pray. As we're going through the message, I'm going to have you switch through the both. And the reason why that other one is uh, separate is so that you can take that and pray specifically for this Tuesday. Some of you have already voted. And if you didn't know that Election Day was this Tuesday, well, now you know. Some of you will be on the fence and you'll say, but I don't know who to vote for, so I'm not going to vote at all. You're going to find out this morning that that may not be the position that you want to be in. So that's the instructions between the two, and I'll let you know which ones to switch to. So we got to pay close attention this morning. Let's wake up this morning, shake your head a little bit. And then uh, I know some of you, have you, you sneaked coffee in or snuck, sneak, past tense of sneak. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> you hid the coffee when you came in. But we're going to pray, and, uh, and then we're going to continue on. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we, we come before you. We ask for your presence. We ask for your grace. We thank you that we're in a place that we can talk about these critical issues when it comes to the relational conflicts that we face and then also the conflicts that we face as a nation. I pray that you would give us wisdom and that the hearers, all of us, we would be able to receive what you have for us through your word because it's your word that is truth and your word will bring us direction. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen. If you know me well enough, or our church, you will know that this church is a place that we always talk about how much God loves us. Because God does. He loves us unconditionally. It doesn't matter who walks through those doors. What matters is that you understand that there is a God who loves you, that we serve a God full of grace, a God who forgives. The things that we're going to talk about this morning has nothing to do with the 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 fact that you're uneasy with certain issues, it really has to do with some, some key ingredients that God wants us to understand when it comes to relational conflict and the relational conflicts that we have in our nation. So not just personally, but as a nation. And the things that we're going to address this morning, some, you know, it'll hit hard. You'll feel it hit your heart. It'll pierce your heart. For some of you, it may be emotional. For some, it'll bring up some anger. But again... It all comes back to the fact that God loves every single person. And because God loves us unconditionally, He wants us to understand the truth behind what His Word is all about. And I feel as we approach Election Day, we face a very critical juncture in our nation, probably more than any other time in our young history as a nation. And this election may be one of our very last chances of needed change. You and I face many relational conflicts that can be resolved through the, the Word of God, and we face many national conflicts that can be resolved through the Word of God. Romans twelve seventeen says it like this, and this is in your notes. It says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, here's the key ingredient. 
as much as possible. You can circle that or underline it. Here's the next key ingredient. As far as it depends on you. And then it says this. Live in peace with everyone. Now, people will push your buttons. Doesn't mean you need to push back. And the Bible says as much as possible. As far as it depends on you. Which means some people are just impossible to please. Or sometimes it's just not possible. But as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, the Bible says. You cannot control how others feel. You cannot control how others will respond. And unresolved conflicts do major damage, and it does major damage to relationships. And we can see that happening in our nation too, with our relationship with different nations, that it can have major consequences. Unresolved conflicts, it blocks my, my connection with God. It hinders my prayers. It prevents my happiness. And so what we're going to look at is seven key steps, key ingredients to resolving relational conflicts and at the same time weave in how we're going to be a part of resolving our national conflicts and the things that we need to deal with nationally. And the first thing we need to do is, and you can write this in, is go to God before anyone else. Go to God before anyone else. Don't go to other people when you're dealing with relational conflict. Go to God first. Go to Him. Don't go to others and talk about what problems you have with so-and-so, because that would be gossip. Go to God first, and then take the steps that God asks of us. And He says this in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, If you are standing before the altar in the temple, giving an offering to God, and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, Leave your offering there beside the altar. Go at once and first, you can underline that, first, be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift to God. So there's something that He's asking us to do first. In other words, reconciliation takes priority over worship. Did you know that? But what God is saying is, how can you worship me when you have a broken relationship here? This is how I know you love me, by your love for one another. So if I have an unresolved conflict in a relationship, but I'm trying to worship God, He's saying, that's unacceptable. Leave your gift, go make it right, and then come back and worship me. Get that right first, then come back to God. That's a part of the leadership that we're looking for in our country. And you can switch your notes on that that other one. And here's what we're going to look at. We need leaders who, and here's the point in A, who have reverence for God. That's the kind of leaders we're looking for. If we're ever going to resolve anything in this nation, we need leaders who have reverence for God. Exodus 18.21, it says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, Men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. You know what the Bible is saying? You and I have a responsibility to select our leaders. That's our God-given responsibility. He's saying, he's not going to leave it to anybody else but us as the people. He's saying, you need to select. And it's interesting that in that word select, there's the word elect. Out of all the people. That He's calling us to do that. That's our God-given responsibility. 2 Samuel 2, 23, verse 3, it says, The God of Israel said, The God, uh, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So the Bible is telling us. See, we're not... If we look at the two presidential candidates, our president right now, Barack Obama and his running mate, Mitt Romney, and we look at the two, sometimes we'll say, you know what, as a Christian, I'm going to vote for a Christian. So, if we can get a Christian in there, then our nation will be better off. But if you look at the history of our presidents, not all were of the Christian faith. They all had different religious backgrounds. In other words, listen very carefully, we're not looking for a leader who will govern our country spiritually. We're not selecting a pastor 
We're not electing a spiritual leader. We're not electing a pastor. We're electing a president. We're not electing a spiritual leader. We're electing a leader of our executive branch of our government. Now, it's great that they would have solid spiritual or a great spiritual foundation that's built on the Word of God. That would be great. But how do you know that? Do you, do you know it by what they say or by what they do? Now, if you were to ask both of them that if they're a Christian and if they fear God, they probably both would say yes. And we need a, 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 a presidential leader who will be able to fear God if we're ever going to meet the challenges ahead. Now, President Obama confesses to be a Christian. And he and his family, they attend the Evergreen Chapel in Camp David near Washington, D.C. And their family attends church. Would that be the basis on saying that he's a Christian? And he confesses to be one. Mitt Romney, on the other hand, he confesses to be a Christian. But his background is Mormonism. And he follows the Book of Mormon as well as the Holy Bible. Now, how do you make a decision between the two? Because it can almost sound confusing. Go back to what Jesus said. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. A tree is recognized by its fruit. That's how you know. Now, you have on one hand, both of them claiming to fear God. And yet many things that our current president has done now, or has the decisions that he's made, many things, yes, you could say, well, that, that sounds like a biblical decision. At the same time, there's many decisions that he has made that has distanced himself from biblical values. And if you've been keeping up with your politics and you've been watching our president, you will know that there's certain decisions that he has been making that are far from Christian values or biblical values. With Mitt Romney, as being a Christian, as he says he is, and the Bible says, look at the fruit. The basis of Christianity is that we know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, that we follow Him and the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, that we follow Jesus Christ alone. And that's the major difference between Mormonism and Christianity. We follow Jesus Christ alone. He is our Savior, Him alone. And we believe the Word of God to be the inspired Word of God, which is God-breathed. So Christianity follows the works and words of Jesus Christ, the Holy Word of God. Mormonism will also have the Book of Mormon, which they believe that it is equal to the Holy Word of God. So if I were to give my opinion in what I see, as the Bible says, the fruit that of the both and their, the lives that they live, hard to say, yes, Christian, not Christian. Now, Mitt Romney has confessed to be a Mormon for decades. Now, I do believe you can be a Christian in a Mormon church. But you cannot be a well-taught Christian in a Mormon church too long. And Mitt Romney has been in the Mormon church for decades. So we can almost be confused with where they both stand. And so I love what Jesus said. Don't look at that side of it. Don't look at their religious beliefs. Look at the fruit of what they're doing. I do think that Every single one of us are going to have to make some critical decisions. We're going to have to make a decision sometimes against what our spouse will believe. And that's a decision that we have to make. Sometimes we won't even check the backgrounds or see where our president or Mitt Romney is at. And we'll just kind of, I'm just going to vote for my political party. 
And we'll do it that way. Or we'll say, it's so messed up, I don't even want to get involved. That's why it gets messed up. We need to be involved. We're part of the key ingredients in this great country. We're not selecting a pastor, we're selecting a president. When I had surgery, I had to take out my appendix. And, and, and uh, when I went to the doctor, the, the, the surgeon said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Here's the steps we're going to take, and here's how we're going to do it. And then here's the recovery time. Not once did I say to him, okay, wait a minute, are you a Christian? Not once. My goal and my thought was, so long as you can do the job, if you can perform surgery on me and you can get me healthier, that's what I'm looking at. In selecting our next president, that's what we need to look at. Can he do, can they, that person, do the job and do it well? so that we can have a healthy recovery. It's a critical decision that we, make, we need to make. Martin Luther said it this way, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk than a foolish Christian. And it makes sense. And that's... That's the that's the decision that we need to make. That's why I say go to God first. In a personal relational conflict and this conflict that we're dealing with in our country. Go to God first. The second thing is to make the first move. Don't ignore it. Don't put things on the side. Face it head on. Make the first move. You decide who you're going to vote for. You decide in your relationship how you're going to resolve this conflict. But make the first move. Many of us don't make the first move because we fear conflict. We fear what's going to take place. But timing is everything. In our country right now, this is one of the most important elections that we're ever facing. It's time for us to vote. And if you haven't been voting or if you're not registered, then you need to quickly make things work quickly. If you are registered and you just never voted or you, don't, you just didn't think you needed to, I think God will show you otherwise today. Because there's always going to be conflict and we're a part of solving this. In your marriage, you're going to have relational conflict. You're going to have conflict in your family. And timing is everything when you want to make things right. Now, if you're trying to resolve something in your family or with you and your spouse... Probably the worst time to resolve something or some conflict is not when you're about to go to sleep. That's not the best time. Imagine that. and You're just about to go to bed. And you're going, oh, such a good day. Okay, good night, good night. And all you hear is, honey, we need to talk. What? Yeah, can we talk about what? About what you said, you hurt me. Oh, man. That may not be the best time to resolve the conflict. The best time to resolve a conflict is when you're at your best, when both people are at, are at their best. Now, if we look at our country, we may not be in the best shape that we've been in previous years. But we may be in the best shape in the ensuing years or the upcoming years. Go to God. Make a move. Make a decision. Plan what you're going to do. In your relational conflicts, plan what you're going to say. Pray before you meet. Meet with a positive attitude. Go into the, the voting booth with a positive attitude. Sometimes we believe in our relational conflicts that... that Wounds or, or time heals wounds. That time heals everything. Time doesn't heal everything. Time helps, but time doesn't heal everything. If you were to have a gash on your arm or a broken arm, and you go to the ER, and the doctor comes on and says, Oh, what's the matter? Oh, I, I need stitches. I'm bleeding. Or, or, or I have a broken bone. And if he said, You know, time heals everything. So the longer you wait, 
the better you'll feel. You wouldn't appreciate that. Some of you actually go to the doctors and it does take long, but time doesn't heal. You're still in pain. You're still bleeding. Time doesn't heal. And we look at the, the, the proper care that God gives. That's what brings healing. It's what God does. Start with yourself. Start with yourself when it comes to relational conflict. Start with yourself when it comes to the issues that we face with the world. Start with who you are. Because you have a voice. You can do something about it. Imagine in our relational conflicts that, that we have, that if you're solving it, you started with this. I am so sorry that I was self-centered. Just imagine that. Imagine if the person that you're thinking of right now that you have a relational conflict with came to you and said, I'm so sorry that I was selfish. Imagine that. Don't look at them. Imagine if they said, I'm sorry I was stubborn. I'm sorry I was hard head. I'm sorry I wasn't listening. I'm sorry that I was ungrateful and and I'm being insensitive. Imagine if they said that. It would solve many of our conflicts. Here's how the Bible puts it. Matthew 7... 3 and 5. It says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. See, the issue when when we're dealing with relational conflict is not incompatibility. Sometimes we think, well, we just don't get along. Many of us don't get along, but we find a way to make things work. It's not incompatibility that's the issue. The issue is immaturity. We need to grow up so that we can face the issues that we need to face. And we, we would have less conflicts if we admitted, not that we're incompatible, but that we're immature. Because then it's something that we can do and something that we can help ourselves with and something that we can go to God with. Sometimes we just refuse to grow up. Most relationships die from not arguments, but they die from inflexibility. That we're not willing to be flexible enough to make things work. That's why we need to begin with humility. When we, when we need to resolve these conflicts, begin with humility. Listen for the person's hurt. You can write that in your third point. Listen for their hurt. Now, we're going to breeze through this because the main two were what we just talked about, going to God. And making the first move. But listen for the hurt. Think about it. When you talk to someone and you're dealing with a, a, a relational conflict... There's some type of hurt there. And we say it this way. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Some of you are trying to get that grammatically. But hurt people hurt people. But I always believe this. Although hurt people hurt people, healed people help hurt people be healed. That's why it comes back to listening to the person's hurt. If we go to God and we ask God for, for healing in our hearts, then we can help hurt people be healed. James 1.19, this is how we listen for the hurt. It says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. How many times that we're in an argument or, or maybe discussing something, or Heidi and I will be discussing something, and as Heidi is talking, as she's saying certain things, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to say. Oh, okay, that's what I'm going to say. Oh, okay, I have ammunition for that. Okay, oh, here's my points. One, two, three. Oh, here's some scripture. I'm going to put that. Oh, I got the Bible. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Are you done talking? Okay, here's what I think. Boop, 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 boop. We listen. I really don't do that all the time, Heidi. It's once in a while. We really don't listen to hear. We listen to speak. What the Bible is saying is, no, you be quick to listen, slow to speak. Because when you're quick to listen, you hear the person's hurt. Then we're able to understand where they're coming from. 99.9% of conflicts come from hurt. 
As Romans 15.2 says, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Build them up, not tear them down. In other words, kind of see from their perspective. You can write that in number four. Consider their perspective. You literally shift your point of view to theirs. That's what you do. You see things from their perspective. You consider their perspective. Tough to do, but very effective. Here's how the Bible says it, Philippians 2, 4 and 5. Each of you should look, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Here's how our attitude should be. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Yep, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Chinese proverb says it like this, Seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. To look, as the Bible says that word look, is the Greek word skopeo. And that's where we get telescope, which means that you can zoom in, that you can see clearly, that you're looking from a, a perspective that you normally wouldn't be able to view from. That now you're looking from their perspective. And when we start looking at other people's perspective and where they're coming from, we'll be able to see their hurt. And we'll be able to help with the resolution or resolving the relational conflict. That's why in our nation, that's the kind of leaders we need. And if you're looking at your next notes in, in that, on that other sheet, we need leaders. And here's the letter B. And this one is a critical one. We need leaders who have respect for the life of the unborn. Now, this is another perspective switch that we're going to have to do because our perspective now needs to switch to the life of the unborn. Now, I know for many of us, this is a very, very touchy subject to talk about. I know for some of you that you've gone through uh, a very difficult decision when it came to abortion. Even some of you men, that you had to make a decision and you had to give your approval. Or maybe some of you were strongly opposed to it. So it's a very difficult issue. But here's what I want to say. And I don't want to downplay how, how, uh, how difficult abortion is. But God is a very loving and forgiving God. That you may have been a po- at a point in your life that you didn't understand the biblical values when it came to the gift of life. Now you understand Maybe God is doing something in your heart right now. But it's a very touchy subject. That's why it's critical for our next leader that they understand and respect the value of the unborn. Because the unborn doesn't have a voice. But God gives them a voice through His Word. And it's found in the book of Jeremiah 1.5. And it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before. Before you were born, I sanctified you, which means I set you apart for me. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, what I'm about to say will be a little heart-wrenching, if not already. But since Roe versus Wade in the early 70s, there are over 52 million babies that have been aborted. This year, they would have been 39 years old at the prime of their life. These are inventors, scientists, teachers, people. 52 million. And you may look at that and say, boy, that's, that's horrifying. Yes, it is. Very horrifying. Now, we have two presidents. And the way I see it, And the illustration that I see is that we have two trains that are heading toward a cliff. One train will be able to slow us down enough to hopefully build some tracks so that we can turn this thing around. Both are heading in that direction, but one is going quicker than the other. One will be able to slow us down enough to turn us around for better days ahead. If you look at their, the both views of our presidents, or our president and uh, Mitt Romney, that they both have views when it comes to this issue 
of the unborn, of abortion. President Obama has already issued Obamacare, where many companies have to provide uh, planned parenting necessities through insurance. And that's through your taxes and my taxes. And we're a part of that. He already has supported partial birth abortion. And he makes it very clear. Now, Mitt Romney, on the other hand, he also supports abortion, yet in these three different areas. In the case of rape, incest, or the health of the mother. Now again, like I said, both trains are heading toward the cliff. But one will be able to slow us down enough to turn this thing around. You and I get to be a part of that in making a difficult decision. Or for some, it may be an easy decision who you're going to vote for. But we need leaders who respect the life of the unborn. It also says in Psalm 139 verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Now, you may look at the the two candidates and you're thinking, but I don't know who to believe. One says one thing, the other says another thing. And they say this, they say that. No matter who we elect, we're still going to disagree once they get into office. No matter who you elect. Because the president, whoever is in that seat, cannot please everyone. But you go to God and you ask Him, who's going to be the ones, which leader will be able to uphold the biblical values when it comes to fearing God, the life of the unborn. In other words, we're going to have to go back to truth, what God says. When dealing with these kinds of conflict, truth is very essential. When dealing with resolving conflicts in your relationships, this is where truth is very important. And, and not truth where you just throw truth at people, but, but to speak the truth tactfully and you can write that in number 5 to tell the truth tactfully to speak the truth in love don't use truth as a weapon to condemn as a as a truth that oh yeah you did this you did that the word of god says this and sometimes we use it as ammunition or to condemn that's not what god is saying proverbs 12:18 it says reckless words pierce like a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing See, truth without love, it's kind of like water to taro leaves. You know, you pour water on taro leaves or when you see the rain on taro leaves, it just goes right off. It resists water. When truth is given without love, it's resisted. It's not received well. It's like water off taro. It just goes on and off. It's not even received well. But truth... Wrapped in love is like lao lao. It's received well. And it tastes very good. So when you speak the truth, speak the truth tactfully. Wrapped in love, it's received so much better. Attack the problem, not the person. That's actually what's happening right now in politics. Sometimes they'll attack one another without attacking the problem. And we need leaders who will attack the problems. Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. When you're resolving a relational conflict, are you imparting grace to the other person or everything they did wrong? Don't attack the person, attack the problem. In other words, number six, fix the problem, not the blame. Fix the problem, not the blame. I like how blame is spelt. Yeah. Be lame. That's what happens when we blame people. We're lame. It only goes in circles. That's what blame does. It goes back and forth. It goes in circles. You blame one person because you have ammunition, they'll blame you back because they have ammunition. And it just goes in circles. When problem solving, put up some boundaries. You only have enough energies for one side. Either you're going to fix the problem or 
blame people. You only have enough energies for one. Which one would you rather expend your energies on? The one that continuously goes on and on and just drains you or the one that you can fix and then we're ready to go? Yeah, that's the one you want to focus all your energies on. And in the days of the Cold War, when we were uh, at war with Russia and the United States, and, and both had, had, had the ability to wipe each other out. We could wipe out Russia. Russia could wipe us out. We had weapons of mass destruction pointed at each other. With just a push of a button, we're done. But both sides said, wait a minute, with our differences, with our differences, if we, press th- if we push this button... We're all gone. So they made a decision to say, even though we're at ends, even though we disagree, let's put up some boundaries that we will not launch these missiles at each other. In other words, in our lives, we got to put up some boundaries so that we don't use weapons of mass destruction in our relationships. For Heidi and I, one of the boundaries we put up in our relationship, and I know for some of you, you're dealing with this right now, or you've been through this, and it's going to be a a difficult one, but I would say this, start fresh with the Lord. And this is one of the weapons of mass destructions, or WMDs, that we will never use. For Heidi and I, we said we will never use in our marriage, and it's the weapon of divorce. That was never an option. And I can't tell you the wonderful rewards of being in conflict, but we fixed the problem. It's so much more rewarding. There's no rewards when you press buttons and you bomb each other. It just doesn't work well. Colossians 3.8, it says, You must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. No matter how angry you get, refuse to use these weapons that cause destruction in your life and your family. The words we speak to our children, sometimes we call them idiot or stupid or you're dumb. That's a weapon of mass destruction that will carry on in their lives for the rest of their lives. Be very, criti- be very cautious on saying those kinds of words because they're missiles pointed at other people. No matter how difficult it is, put up those boundaries. Don't belittle people. Someone said it like this. Those who belittle people are not that big at all. And the Bible says, rid yourselves of these things. Romans 14, 13, it says, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Blaming is a form of judging. And God is the only judge. Now, some people will say, well, the reason why the situation is like this is because you didn't do this. You should have done this. You could have done this. They blame others instead of saying, you know, I didn't do this. Or I should have done this. Or I could have done this. We can say those things. And we can learn from our past. But sometimes we blame so many other people that we never fix the problem. And the problem continues to go with us. Sometimes we face that as a nation. We, we're, we're dealing with some of the results of blame. And we need a leader in C, and the, the other notes. We need a leader who will reinforce the biblical value of family. That's the type of leader we need. Now, this issue is a difficult one also. Because they both love their families. Our President Barack Obama, you know he loves his family. Mitt Romney, you can tell he loves his family, he loves his boys. You know they love their families. But you got to look at the fruit again. That's what Jesus said. What's the fruit? What kind of decisions are are they making? Now, Barack Obama has already said this, and I'm just saying what he already did. That he is in support of same-sex marriage. And he already said that. Mitt Romney is against it. And they want to pass a law that says that there should be, in our Constitution, that we should amend a law that says that marriage is between man and woman. Now, where does he get that from? Well, he gets it from Jesus Christ. In Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, because Jesus had to deal with this too. And Jesus says, Haven't you read the Scriptures? 
Jesus replied, They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. This is what the Bible speaks. And, and people ask often, where does New Hope stand on same-sex marriage? Well, we stand on the Word of God. It's, it's pretty simple. We stand on the Word that Jesus said, that God created us male and female. Now, you choose what direction you want to go, but it doesn't change God's Word and how He created us. Now, you may have conflict in this area. You may have conflict in your very own family with this. But here's our last point. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. And let me explain this because it can, can almost sound contradictive to itself. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. Reconciliation means reestablishing the relationship. That's what reconciliation is. It's, it's to reestablish the relationship. So focus on reconciliation, not resolution. Resolution means we solve every issue. I'm going to tell you, that's not going to happen. In our families, sometimes we don't solve every issue. In our nation, we don't solve every issue. You're not going to find anyone who agrees with you on everything. We will never have a president whom we agree with in every policy that they, have, that they give. I look at it this way. We can have a great marriage. We can have a great family. We can have a great nation. Wisdom is the ability to walk hand in hand without seeing eye to eye. Sometimes a marriage is like that. Sometimes politics are like that. Wisdom is the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. Wisdom is unity without uniformity. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Not a peace lover, that, oh, I love peace, I love peace. No, a peacemaker, that you're going to do something about it. See, if you focus on the relationship more than the issues, you'll find that some things we argue over aren't worth arguing over. Focus on the relationship. Build bridges, not walls. And it's so much more rewarding to resolve a conflict than to dissolve the relationship. That's the kind of leaders we look for. And this is the last part of our leadership, leader we look for. And this one is very critical because this has to do with relationship. We need a leader who will recognize our responsibility to the nation of Israel. Now, you may not understand entirely what that means. And some of you, you understand what that means. But we need a leader who will recognize the importance of our relationship with the nation of Israel. And this is what I mean. In Genesis 12, 3, the Lord says this to Abram. Now, Abram, remember, he's the father of all the nations. Genesis 12, 3, the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you. And he's talking about the descendants of Abram, which is Israel. And I will curse him who curses you, and in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I can tell you this, and you can study history. Every nation that was against Israel is not doing very well. But the nations that have supported Israel have done very well. In fact, we are the last super powerhouse or the powerhouse that is supporting Israel right now. Now, both presidents will say they both, they support Israel. But again, looking at the fruit, it will say otherwise. Every nation that did not support Israel did not last for too long. Someone might say, well, can, how, how much longer can we last as a nation in the direction that we're going? 
Well, I would say again, it's a train headed toward a cliff. How long will we last as this super powerhouse and as a strong and the most powerful nation? How long can we last? Not too long if we choose unwisely. You are most like Jesus when you do the right thing. The book of James says it this way. With everything that we talked about, you have decisions to make with relational conflict as well as electing our next president. The Bible says this, and I'll be very firm on this, but a strong believer in this. And I hope you take this the right way with all your heart and you take this as a word of encouragement. The Bible says, for him to know what is right and to not do what is right, to him that is sin. If you know what to do, the right thing to do, but do not do it, the Bible says it is sin. And I pray that God has been speaking to our hearts that we will do the right thing come Tuesday. That we will know what God has called us to do. Before you can resolve any relational conflict, before you can be a peacemaker, you need the Prince of Peace. Go back to the Lord. Go back to God. Go back to the biblical values in making decisions in your relational conflicts as well as our national conflicts. And I tell you, when you do the right thing, you'll see God move in a mighty way. Amen. And close your Bible, put away your notes. Take a deep breath. Whew. You know, in, in praying and getting ready for today's message, I really felt the Lord saying there's some things that we got to tackle and we have, and, and there's things that we got to think through. And in leading up to this election, there are many other pastors and, and churches around our nation and around the world that, that has, have had their eyes on the United States of America because not only does this election affect us as a nation, it affects the entire world through technology, our world became smaller. And leading up to this, a pastor by the name of David Jeremiah was speaking to Franklin Graham, which is the son of Billy Graham. And he said to Franklin Graham, he said, we need to campaign this because it's a critical election. And in his 40 years, he's been through 10 presidential elections and he has never seen a presidential election as important as this. And neither have I. And he said to Franklin Graham, he said, we need to campaign this. We need to, we need to put an ad in all the newspapers in the, in the states that need to know how important it is. That deal with these issues. And he said to Franklin, your dad, Billy Graham, would be the perfect person to be on this campaign ad. And he said, can you talk to your father? And Because his father wasn't feeling well. And so Franklin Graham said, I will talk to daddy and I'll see what he says. Well, he came back to Pastor David Jeremiah and he said, I talked to dad. And dad said, that is an excellent idea and he would love to be a part of it. And you are the man to make it happen. They needed $950,000 to place these ads. In one week, they raised $3.5 million. I really believe it had nothing to do with them raising money, but that God wants to speak clearly to us as a nation. And here's the ad. They're going to put it up, and I'll read it for us. On November 6th, the day before my 94th birthday, our nation will hold one of the most critical elections in my lifetime. We are at a crossroads, and there are profound moral issues at stake. I strongly urge you to vote for candidates who support the biblical definition of marriage between a man and woman, protect the sanctity of life, and defend our religious freedoms. The Bible speaks clearly on these crucial issues. Please join me in praying for America 
that we will turn our hearts back toward God. Signed, Billy Graham. And we're going to do that right now if you'd bow your heads with me and let's, let's pray. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray as citizens of the United States of America that we won't sit back, we won't relax on this next election, that we'll be a part of this critical juncture that we're in, that we're facing. You have given us the responsibility as Christians, over 60 million registered Christians, to vote. To follow your word in selecting men who will fear you. That we're electing a president, not a pastor. We're not electing a spiritual leader. We're electing a leader of our executive branch of our government. So we want to do our part. Give us the courage, the ability to do so. I pray for each person here today, Lord. And with the things we wrestle with, with, even in our relational conflicts that we'll be able to do things how you do things, and that we would abide by your word. And so we look to you as our God to give us the wisdom that is required to make the decisions that we need to. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And every single person said, Amen. Amen.